Hey, it's BT with Tales from a Gemini. My guest today is Kate Dingley, the author of Easy Riders. It's about black bike clubs, black motorcycle clubs, MCs. I say gangs, I say clubs. Anyway, she does an extensive, just a uh, book of extensive uh, motorcycle clubs in New York City. And it's that you don't hear about these guys. And her work is so underappreciated. You're going to love this interview, but if you get a chance, get the book, listen to the interview. She is great. Enjoy this. My time with Kate Dingley. One, two, three. Hey, it's BT with Tales from a Gemini. My guest here is probably the most gangster in the room right now. Because you know why? Because you don't think she is. And then she busts out with this shirt she's got on now. And I go, that's why I love this woman. She had, Look at it. Look, look show, show the shirt again, Kate. Show the shirt again. Look at that. This is what bikers I'm... T- against Nazis. Bikers. Who isn't against Those Nazis? Those are the real bikers out there. <laughs> My God. That's what I'm talking about. She's gang... You don't think it, but she's gangster. You think she's oh, a nice little lady. She'll cut your throat, won't think twice about it, and then get on her moped and leave. I mean, she really does. She's the author of this incredible book here, Kate Dingley. This is Easy Rider. I couldn't wait to get it. When I, we talked the first time, I said I was going to, you know, download and get it. And I mean, from about, when I, I went home that day and I ordered it and I kept bothering you. Like, hey, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? And it finally came out and I couldn't put it down. I mean, how you doing? First of all, how you doing? I'm great. I'm glad that the book is finally in the world after all those delays. And but by it's the out there now. Yes. And by the way, before people even whatever, you are with child. Yeah. Yeah. My, my book was my first baby. I had to get that out first. <laughs> and now I'm ready for the, the other baby. And, and now is that, is that going to be a one percenter? Is that, gonna, is that baby going to be a one percenter? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the baby feels like. You know. <laughs> are, are you excited? Are you excited? I am. Yeah. It's uh, it, it'll happen in December and I, I'm not saying boy or girl, cause we're actually, we're keeping it a surprise. So I actually, I have no idea. We will see. It'll be a good little Christmas present come Man, December. I think that is so great. And I'm going to ask you this because, I mean, once kids come, a lot of things change. So I know before, before the kid came, well, I, one part I remember us talking about, you said, I'm a stubborn motherfucker. So now that the kid come, are you going to be even more stubborn or do you have to feel like you have to ease up a little because you're going to be a parent? I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see. But the, the one thing that I am definitely making sure of is that, you know, I can keep like I can be a mom and keep going with my photo projects. And, you know, luckily in a lot of these, I mean, you saw the photos in Easy Riders. It's a very family oriented community, you <laughs> yes. know, and I think a lot of the a lot of the work that I'm drawn to, um, you know, does orient around family and community. So that old baby's going to be uh in a in a little sling with me <laughs> as I'm going around photographing. That's the plan, at least. We will I, see. I I can't wait. And for, when the book came out, I think what set the tone about this book was the forward by Jimmy Briggs, and, and that just told you everything that you told me. But when you read the forward, that's it, what it's it, to me. Like I said, it sets the tone because you talk about how. The black biker set is basically just it's unrepresented in in print or anywhere else. And, you know, he set up he talked about it perfectly. I think it was a a survey in the 2013, I think, by a, a, a professor in Coastal Click, Carolina. 
And you're talking about how people view black bikers, uh, the, the perception of black bikers versus white bikers. Talking about Myrtle Beach, which I've been to Black Bike Week, and I saw how they treated us as opposed to white bike, and how like their police were everywhere we were, and nobody acted up. We were just having a good time. It was I didn't see any you know shenanigans you know up to uh, to the point where police should have been called in, and yet and still I heard what happened the week before, and nothing happened. No one mentioned that, and a big uh, I think one of the biggest ones ever when he mentioned what happened in Waco, Texas. How, you know, is uh, rival uh, biker factions, nine people, I think, died and not one criminal conviction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy's forward was amazing. I was so grateful that he kind of pulled it all together way better than I could have. Um, <laughs> yeah, that study, um, it was the first study you're talking about, um, about Myrtle Beach, how there's that uh, white bike week right before Black Bike Week and and just the perceptions of the mostly white residents, how they viewed these bikers and how it was so, yeah, it was just shocking how, um, you know, they viewed the white bikers through this lens of, um, you know, what we think of as those movies from the 60s, you know, they're just, uh, they're just guys looking for independence, they're, um, you know, loving rebels, basically, while um, they viewed the black bikers coming into their community who were, you know, just bikers, just like the white bikers yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, as, you know, potentially criminal. Um, how how do they afford those nice bikes, those nice cars? You know, I mean, it's it's it was just really disturbing, um, but also really, really important. That was the only study that we were able to locate um, of its kind. So really that professor for, for doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, besides that, it's, it's all kind of anecdotal, you know, from what I talking to bikers, um, both black and white in the scene, um, you know, that's what they tell me, but <laughs> it's really nice to have this, this study in your back pocket as well and be like, Hey, look, this isn't just anecdotal. It's, this is how it is. Now, now, what did the white bikers tell you when you? I mean, like, what, what did you talk? To, what did you talk to them about? Well, the, I have not talked to, um, I haven't talked to like one percent or white bikers. The white bikers that I'm talking to are in the the black motorcycle club scene. So obviously, they're they're a little bit different for that, um, and they they observe those differences as well. Yeah, because I remember I think I went the uh, the first one of all, and I don't even know if they're one percenters, but I know the first ones were was the chosen few uh, out of uh, Los Angeles, and in nineteen fifty eight, I believe it was. They were the first ones to integrate, and it's amazing how what they talk about how what how the white one percenters what they call them for being in, in a club, and I thought like, wow, really, you know? Yeah, yeah, there's. There's so much, it, it's such a complicated web, you know, because you also have a few bikers mention it in their interviews in the book. You also have um, these white one percenter clubs who do not allow black membership, you know, who wear the swastikas and, and all the other racist paraphernalia, but they allow black clubs to be support clubs. Um, they allow them to pay a membership fee and, you know, be part of their umbrella, their protective umbrella, or, you know, sometimes come to their parties, I guess. So it's, it, it's, a, and, you know, the, the particular uh, 
interviewers, interviewees, I mean, in the book talk about that. And they're like, you know, for our club, obviously that's not an option because if you're not going to let me in my, in your club, like, why would I want to give you money and support you? (laughs) Yeah. So it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's such a, a strange and complex web. Um, And part of me being a Gemini and I looked at it like in a way, in a way it's like, okay, you know, we don't get representation in the bike community and, and we don't, you know, get representation as being a one percenter club, but in a way it's like, okay, maybe that's kind of good that we're not considered outlaws, but in a way we're the outlaw of the outlaws. We're the one percenter of the one percenters. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the, Black one percenters, and I do know one or two clubs who essentially function as one percenters, but choose not to take that label as they see that that's something more from the white side and they choose not to go along with that. Um, The black one percenters, because they know that, you know, law enforcement's eyes are going to be more on them. um, They're going to draw more attention being black on a motorcycle, they, as you know, they're forced to be much more quiet. You know, they can't, they could never have a shootout like Waco ever. Yeah. You know, if that would have happened, there would have, everyone would have been convicted and, you know, they never would have been able to meet in their clubhouse again, probably. (laughs) So they do have to operate, you know, I think in a very different way. Now, has any of this shocked you? Because you, I mean, you say it so matter-of-factly, but did, did, did you realize that kind of uh, existed to, to this degree? Or were you always around it and you just like, kind of like, okay, I'm not going to say anything because, or did you already know, like, wow. You mean in, um, it, it, with, the, with the law enforcement presence or the or just hanging out with the one percenters or yeah hang out with the one percenters and also well i think law enforcement i think we can all figure that out but yeah we'll hang out with the one percenters like did you did you did you know it was that deep like or that complicated because it seems complicated because i thought one of the greatest ones you had was uh you interviewed the guy who's uh, he was cool with the people, but he heard them, you know, throwing the N-word around. But then he'd go down and go, oh, that's this so-and-so. He's friends with him. And then, you know, uh, his grandma would come in and they go, well, let me get your groceries for you. And he's like, here's these guys, you know, saying N-word, N-word, N-word. But they helped his grandmother out and they were really nice to her and they, and they let, you know, paid him to watch the bike. So it's like, you know, you're getting confusing signals here. So did, did you know to the degree it was at, where it was? I mean, no, I, I had no idea. I, of course, I had my my own preconceptions about about white bikers, about <laughs> like their, you know, I mean, they're riding around with swastikas. I think they they mostly make their they they put out a certain energy, of course, which mm-hmm. you can guess. But um, yeah, it was really interesting to hear. Um, that was, that was Preach's story. He was very young, you know, he was just a kid when he was experiencing that, um, you know, seeing that white one percenter club next door, um, being friends with, with one of their brothers who was his age and, and yeah. And then at the same time, these guys holding the door for his grandma, um, he preach as an individual, I think more than a lot of the bikers in the scene kind of straddles both of those worlds. Um, but he a hundred percent does not tolerate, uh, any, 
any prejudice, any racism, and he does not tolerate the N-word in his presence. So, you know, he has, uh, he's a strong character, and I think that he's been pretty influential on some white and black bikers in his, you know, in his circle, which is cool. No, that's what I love about the book is that you do a great, great job of just like you get to know these people. And it's like, you know, like I was re- and I, for some reason, I don't know why. But, you know, when I saw Brown Sugar. I just assumed he was gay. I don't know why I just did because I heard Brown Sugar. I go, OK, well, that's fine. And, you know, and so I was I don't know why, but I just did. And I, I think for me. I liked his, I mean, I liked their, I loved all their stories and how you presented them because you saw behind that, you know, if you don't put biker label and you're just reading it, you saw what those people kind of were and, and, and it all boiled down and it sounds like a joke, but it's kind of fast and furious, like it's all about family and that's what it is. And you know, no matter where they came from, whatever, they all got together and it was family. I mean, they're supposed to be badass bikers, but yet still they're doing a toy run for the kids, man. And I think the safest place for the kids is actually at a, at a uh, uh, the bike uh, the, the clubhouse. I mean, that's one of the safest places for a kid. That's the one place you don't have to worry about some kid, uh, you know, somebody putting their hands on your kid or or your kid being you know touched or whatever. Because the safest place for them is going to be in that clubhouse, which is stereotypically oh that's a scary place. And how those walls were broken down, and how some of your readers are talking about okay, I knew where you know the bike is where the bikers clubhouse. I'm gonna steer clear of it. But once they went in, they go, hey, that's my mother-in-law. What is she doing partying with these people? You know, and that, okay, that's my I know this person. So these guys can't be that bad. So I loved how you did that. You you humanized them so that people who aren't in that scene saw behind the curtain. And I thought you did that very beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I loved um, Lady Diamond talking about her personal story because she had many of the preconceptions that a lot of us would have. You know, she says, oh, I was I would walk across the street. Um, from the clubhouse because I didn't even want to walk by their front door you know she lived right around the corner from uh, the Black Falcons and she was very intimidated by them she um, she didn't know what to make of them Um, so when she had to make her way into the clubhouse one day um, she yeah she saw her mother-in-law behind the bar she saw like you know old high school friends just like dancing and having a good time and she's like oh this is this is pretty fun actually so yeah i love to i love to hear how um you know she she grew up right there right next to the clubhouse and she had these same ideas until she really she gave them a chance and um you know, kind of started to get in the scene a bit. So, yeah, that was a cool story to hear from her. I think it's like anything else, man. Until you maybe strike up a conversation, until you, like, you know, have a run, and I said running, running sounds bad, but, you know, unless you come across somebody and you have a conversation, there's that preconceived, you know, that stereotype or whatever, like, oh, I'm not going there. Those guys are mean. And then you go, wait, these guys are cool. Like you said, I think the funny thing, she goes, hey, that's my mother-in-law, <laughs> you know, at a clubhouse. And so you realize, hey, man, they're just like everybody else. And they're they're all bonded together by by just their love of motorcycles, which I think is great. And I love that part of it. I, I love the individual stories. And for, for some reason, I don't know why. But I just, 
the story about Priest really, I don't know why, but it hit home with me how he was a gang member. And, you know, he started out, you know, being a gang member first. And then, but he's also it was a great athlete. And But, you know, he he's, he's another one to me straddle the line of he was a good person. He's a gang member. He, you know, he had a scholarship to, to college, you know, but he ran across this kind of racism. He come back and then his own neighborhood damn near kills him. And I just, I just love the duality of that story. What was the one that stuck out for you of all the bikers that you interviewed? The one that, that maybe made you go, of all of them, because I think they're all fascinating, but what's the one that made you go, I, I, for some reason, this resonates with me more? Well, you know, different parts of their stories hit me in different ways. Obviously, I, I did give Priest's story a lot of room because it also really affected me. And, and I hope that people, I hope that people would understand why I decided to include it. Um, yeah, I, I think that, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious, why do you think that I included Priest's story in the context of, you know, primarily all the, the talk about motorcycle clubs? Because in his longer story, we don't get into, um, you know, him being with hood riders, but yeah. Why do you think that I decided to include that? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I might be the wrong person to ask because I'm a firm, I'm a firm person. And this is why one of the reasons I named this Tales from a Gemini is that I see both sides. You know, like I know, you know, I've known people who, you know, may not be on the different side of the law, but they're not really bad people. But you can't say that to somebody who just points the finger, all oh, those people, they need to be in jail. Like, you don't know this person, you know, for whatever reason, they're in this gang, you know, for whatever reason. And he's very upfront and, and personal about it, about, you know, about what he did and whatever. But I just love and for me personally. Personally, I don't think I put that much into it, but you had to have that. If it's going easy riders and there's, you talk about that element of 1%, you had to have that in it. I mean, they're not all going to be, you know, so-called choir boys. And so you had to have that story. But I think the reason you told that story of, to me, I looked at the redemption of it. You know, like he didn't, he never seemed like a bad guy. We've all, I don't know, all of us, but we've all maybe, you know, done some stuff. Eh, I mean, I maybe should have done it. Or maybe that little period of your life where you're like, kind of like, add ah, to hell with the world, you know, flipping off. I get that and the fact that you know thinking he's gonna die and making his peace with it and then like you know his dad being there and his dad telling this and that and maybe he's going through that period of your life where you think you know every damn thing and you're about to die it's like oh shit and then he comes out the other side and he's like and I just think it makes him better so for me personally I don't think I put that much in it but I'm so glad you put that story in it because no matter how much like I said this is my alter ego I want to be a one percenter I want to be that outlaw so bad but I know I can't but I love the fact that I love this element and that's my alter ego and I love that so I love seeing that that he walked that line but he's not a bad person there's not one person in here you go that's a bad person you know what I mean? You you humanized him, but not to the point you you like I don't know you catered toward him or, or whatever made him seem like more than they were. They're just yeah. You don't want to sanitize anything. You didn't, and I thought you did a great job of showing the human element, the human side of it. That's what's so beautiful about it. Yeah, I love that you said that. That was that really felt like redemptive to you because I I felt that as well. Um, and I think that to be super general, the stories that really hit me the most, including this one by Priest, which is why I wanted to include it, is that when it comes down to each and every one of these bikers, they are looking for community. They're looking for, they're looking for, for, for love, you know, in the platonic sense, they're looking for 
that support, that acceptance, that that brotherhood or sisterhood. And we see people kind of look for it maybe in the wrong places at first, you know, maybe they're looking for it in, you know, the crypts um, and they find that that's not, that's not them. That's not uh, a group that's going to accept them and elevate them and, you know, bring them to a better place in life. Whereas the motorcycle community is ultimately where a priest ends up and, you know, is much, much better off there than, than where he was before. Um, and I also think, you know, for me, ending on King Midas's story, he was, you know, in the Marines, I think he was, uh, again, looking for that brotherhood that a lot of people find in the military. Um, and, you know, the brotherhood was, was taken away from him within his first couple of days of being deployed. And, um, you know, his experience with PTSD, uh, I hoped would speak to people, his, the healing power of coming back to New York and getting on his motorcycle and finding that being on his motorcycle was really uh, a peaceful place for him. Um, being with his club brothers and sisters. Uh, I thought that was super powerful as well. And, and every, every interviewee kind of, you know, offers, offers those little really like powerful, vulnerable glimpses into their lives where you get to, yeah, peek behind the curtain. And I'm glad that you said that it felt very humanized because that was the intention. And, you know, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to work to do it. You know, I really appreciate them being so open with me during these interviews and being willing to share this stuff. Cause I know it's not, it's not easy, you know, to put yourself out there like that. So it was really cool that, um, they were able to be open like that. Well, I think, man, you deserve a lot of that credit because, you know, from, you can, under, you can see your, who you are as a person that you you don't pander. I mean, I just feel that that human side of you, and I think they do too. I think they can you can smell out a fake. You can smell out a person who's like uh, they're uncomfortable. Like so, what's like riding a motorcycle? They could tell with you, it was sincere, and you really wanted to know. And I don't care how big and bad my tough tough you know think they are or whatever, or if they are. When somebody is really generally really want to know and they they ask questions, for the most part, I find if. if if somebody seeks them and asks a question, and they're generally, they want to know for the simple fact, they want to know, they don't want to exploit them, but they just, you know, I want to know your story. Tell me your story. I think they're more than, they're more than willing to be an open book to you, uh, to, to, to be, to, especially to you, because I feel that from you. It, it's just it, who you are as a person. I mean, it's genuine. So when you come in being different, I mean, you know, looking the way you look and you come in like, all right, what's she about? I think from the moment you probably start talking or asking questions, I go, Okay, she's real. I mean, like I said, from the first moment, you probably think you're FBI informant, but I think after a while they go, nah, I think she's real, you know, and you are. And that's what I love about you is that you're just so, you're down to earth and you're inquisitive and you want to know and you want to bring that story out to everybody. And you do a fantastic job of that. Oh, thank you. You know, the FBI informant thing, (laughs) one guy at Black Falcons, this older guy who just, you know, he was always like, yeah, 
I still think you're like an FBI or cop or something. I never, I never convinced him. He was the one. He was, I, I don't know if it was a joke by the end yeah. of it, but I could never tell. <laughs> now, how was the book received in the, in the biking community? How was it? It's been great. It's been great. Like, it, I've been talking about this book for years. So it, it's been really like rewarding to finally be like, okay, here it finally is you know, you, you were right to believe me that it was actually going to happen. Yeah. His bookmaking is such a slow process. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been great. I've heard from bikers all around the country. Um, you know, new people all the time reaching out new clubs. Uh, it's been really like, it's been really, really cool. Uh, so yeah, I still, I have to make a trip out to New York. I'm thinking of going in the next month. Um, cause now I've just been shipping them out to people out there and they've been kind of passing it around the community and sharing it online, but yeah, I need to get out there and, um, bring it to the clubhouses. No, you do. Because I remember I hit you up and I, and you said, well, you could go online. I go, no, 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 no. I want to hold it. I want to smell it. And I want it. I'm an old school. I wanted to be like this with it, you know, and I want to, and I literally, and it sounds like nothing, but I want to do this right here with it. This, this is what, to me, it's all about. I don't want to be like, you know, on my iPad here. I want to hold it, and I want to I smell that when I see these pictures. To me, I, I can feel these pictures instead of if I was on the iPad. And for some reason, I know it sounds corny, but I'm a corny dude. I want to see that. The, the picture of the kids here, man, you know, their dad's the prez, and, and they go to the clubhouse, and, and how they're at the barbecue here. And, you know, the, you got the old, you got fat daddy here, you know, the retired member, and he's looking at you, and, the, and you got the two ladies here. That's what it's about, man. And that's why if you get a chance, order this because there's nothing like feeling a book in your hands and her and it's this and I said it was gonna change like I really think it will. I think what you've done is monumental because no one has done it. Like I said before you, I didn't know anything about it. And once I start digging deep, I go, Well, why the hell didn't I know about this? And now that we know the secret's out. And that's why, and it sounds bad, that's why when I find out you're pregnant, I go, oh, man, because I want you to go Midwest, East Coast, and also West Coast, because there's things you don't know about. I mean, there's biker clubs you don't know about. We don't know about black biker clubs, and you need to bring that out, because now that people know that you're real, you know, you're not some fake chick just looking in and, you know, trying to earn a buck, you're sincere. So I want you to have another five-year project, but I don't want your kid to be five years old, like, hey, where's mommy? (laughs) You know, mommy's in a clubhouse somewhere in Oakland. You know, I mean, I, I, I want you to be with your kids, but also, and it's for my own selfish reason, I want another book and I want it to be West Coast and Midwest included. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I'm I'm never going to say never. It it could be like a lifelong project because, yeah, the, the information's just not really, it's not really out there. These clubs haven't been celebrated in the same way as the white side and, you know, or at all. And, um, yeah, I would love to keep doing that documentation, but yeah, I even, I thought about it even during the process of, of making easy riders here, you know, I, mm-hmm. I did, I was out in Oakland. Um, I met the East Bay dragons, um, went to their clubhouse, you know, and I realized that it was just, I would never get this book out unless I focused on New York for a bit. Right. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll now, see. Ha- 
even even though you took a peek into the West Coast with the East Bay Dragons, do you still feel, that, or do you feel, there's a difference between East Coast and West Coast? And 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 there's also, you know, in California, Northern California and Southern California are totally different, also. So, like, do, do, did you see that difference? Even though you had that little bit of peak. I mean, I don't know if I'd say there's a huge difference between East and West Coast. I'd say there's a big difference depending on the kind of city you live in. Um, Because if you're in a city like uh, New York or like maybe Detroit or maybe Baltimore, um, you know, it's it's more of like a contained city with... um, you know, all those, to, I always, the bikers in New York, and I'm, I'm going to assume it's the same, you know, in these other cities like Detroit, Baltimore, or in the Midwest too. Um, like it's, you have to have a certain kind of grit to be a biker in these cities because you have a long winter, you have a rough winter, you have all these, you know, awful roads, with giant potholes that'll take you down in a second, you know, it's, yes. you've got, um, a lot more people around you, a lot more probably law enforcement. Um, whereas if you're in the West Coast, you've got those open highways, you've got more space, you've got your big, nice clubhouse. You know, even in Oakland, um, you've got your your big old clubhouse, plenty of room to park, you know, good roads, like sunny weather all year long. It's a very different um, just in terms of just riding you know you have to be really dedicated uh in a different kind of way you know in new york or in detroit than you do um and you know probably in southern california where you can just get on the road at any time any time of the year so the new york bikers will say that but i think you know overall there's not not a big difference between between the two and what's really cool is that i'm seeing now um, as more of these clubs become like, get to know each other a little bit more, these clubs that are across the country, you know, through social media, I hope, you know, partly through the book, um, they're visiting each other, they're mixing, they're interacting, they're, um, getting to know each other. So I hope that like by banding together, also these clubs can help preserve their, their legacies themselves. And, and, um, you know, continue on with that, that celebration, keep these historic clubs going. Well, and that's what I said. When I said the first, the first time we talked, I said, when I say it's going to be monumental, it's monumental because honestly, even though, I mean, when I got the book, you know, I, I, I saw pages and I marked them and I said, okay, oh, I got to follow this, uh, this club on social media. And I did. And they followed me back and I'm like, oh, I mean, I, and that's and honestly, and it's all because of you, because I didn't know a lot of these clubs. And, I, and that's when I said, what you did with this is not to be understated. It really is. What you did with this not being understated. And I think maybe East Coast and West Coast can, uh, the riders, maybe they can meet in the middle. Or maybe they talk to somebody from, from here, the 317 boys, and be like, hey, man, you guys ride? Why don't we meet up and, I don't know, blah, 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 you know, try to find a, a, a central meeting point. And that's because of you. And I'm a firm believer, and this is non sequitur, but those guys in Florida and Texas get on my damn nerves because they can ride 365 days out of the year. Right. So they get on my nerves. So to me, yeah, I ain't trying to hear what you got to say. 
When you have to ride in 20 degree weather, which I did from Louisville to Indianapolis, I rode, it was 22 degrees. I remember that. And I rode, I had to stop every 20 miles because my fingers were so frozen. I literally couldn't pull in the clutch lever. I, I, I don't know how I did it, but I had just enough. I could feel my nub and I literally pulled it in like this to change gears. And I got off the bike. And I went into a convenience store and I put my hand around a coffee pot, like my bare hands around a coffee pot, and it just stayed there. And they looked at me like, what are you doing? I go, it's so cold outside. <laughs> so people from Florida, and I don't even want to hear, if you're from the South, I don't even want to hear what you got to say. But people from New York, I love your grit. California, yeah, too. But that's why I think New York is going to resonate a lot because that's, a, that's East Coast, bad weather, and you ride. Yeah, they get on their bikes and they get together. They can't just be part-time bikers, you know. <laughs> but the part that I love the most, and now you know, we all know about the crashes and this and that, but it was the woman's story, how she crashed and she crashed. I think, she, I mean, did she lose a limb? But she still wrote, and you go, hey, if you want to do this life, if you're really, you know, about being a biker, then this is what you do. And like, it never crossed their mind to stop riding. Did that did, did that catch you or like it or did that make you go wow or how, how did that affect you yeah well I, I learned pretty early on that they say you know it's not it's not if you fall but when <laughs> and, yeah. and yeah I mean a lot of these riders have been in like horrible horrible accidents um and it it definitely impresses and shocks me that they would hop back on that bike as soon as you know they get the pins out of their legs, <laughs> you know, two years later. Oh, they can walk again. Okay, now I can get back on the bike. Yeah, that that really is impressive. And and the, also the riders who ride, you know, well into their 70s and 80s. Yes. You know, they keep going. And and I asked, I asked every biker that I interviewed, and then a lot that I didn't interview too, you know, like when will you stop riding? And they're like, uh, when I can't. You know, that was the answer from every single person. <laughs> That's so. beautiful. When I can't. Man, I wish you would have put that in a book. When can't because I remember I think it was was it Jimmy who was saying his favorite uncle was the one in LA and who's like 80 and every night he'll sneak off and he'll ride on the freeway. And I thought, God, that's I want that to be me. You know, I saw the book on the chosen few and one guy was 72 and he was still riding. Matter of fact, he was still putting bikes together, you know, so he could ride. So I, I just love that level of passion. Yeah, me too. That was definitely one of the main things that drew me to, to these clubs. Now, was it when it was every oh, uh, now we talked about the one percenter, but uh, and on the first time you're like, I can't mention any names here. And I said, I get it. I get it. But can you mention names now or or still you want to keep that kind of like hush hush? Or can you mention any names of the clubs? I mean, I don't. Yeah, I'd rather just have you guess from, <laughs> <laughs> from the book. Um, but yeah. So if, if I guessed right, would you say uh, you're on the right track? See, this was what this was what I hit in my interviews sometimes where I'd be like, so what one percenter club were you in? And they're like, and I was like, was it this club? And they're like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm doing that same cagey thing right now. <laughs> it's like a Trump deposition. I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. Could be, <laughs> it, you could have guessed right. You could have guessed wrong. So maybe maybe the, maybe the outcast MC maybe. Well, there are you know you can see there are a few outcast photos in the book. Yeah. 
<laughs> they're good. Originally out of Detroit. Oh, oh, oh that, that's where they're originally from. Okay, I didn't know. I thought they were originally from uh, from the uh, East East Coast. I thought they were like from uh, Massachusetts or Boston area. I think their mother chapter is Detroit. Yeah, but they, you know, they're in New York and they're in Atlanta, a few other cities as well. So I, I think Kansas City also. I, there's a book about one of the guys, and I read it, and he was it, he went cross. I think reason I thought that because he started in uh, in Massachusetts and he rode from there to Long Beach. And it was great because he was, try, you know, he got into some trouble like uh, as soon as he left. And uh, and he, he met some cops, but they were really, really cool to him. So it was like it made him go, huh. You know, had it, he had, had to rethink it because they were really nice to him. And he was like, OK, I remember him going through Kentucky. And for some reason, he had to talk to a cop and they were really nice to him. And so I love that kind of like, you know, there's your stereotype perfect, uh, perception of him. And even he had to go, okay, you know, they kind of helped me here and they didn't really give me a hard time. So, eh, you know, and that's what I loved about it, man. You know, it's like you, you broke down a lot of walls, you know, but at the same time, what did you see? I could ask you the first time. What did you see or did you see any, you know, I, I used, you related in a story about them coming, like the, the, head, the head outlaw bikers, the one percenters coming to one of their little clubs or whatever and talk and literally tearing the, I think the, the rockers off somebody and like, hey, and tell you president, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa. But that was only one story like that. And I want to know, did you see anything else or hear any other stories? Um, you know, I, I will, probably the more, one of, one of the more nerve wracking things and, you know, not to say that this represents the usual, but I was going to a bike blessing and I arrived about five minutes after um, a big fight had broken up and there had been a shooting and one or two people killed, but it was, it was one of these huge bike blessings where um, it was, it's supposed to be a neutral day. And for 20 years it had gone fine without incident. Um, 20, a 20 year record, pretty good, bringing all these clubs together, including clubs that were beefing, you know, one percenters, but also plenty of the, the 99 clubs, you know, all the normal non-outlaw clubs, um, which make up the majority of the scene are there too. Um, and normally everyone can get along, but just on this one day, uh, I guess something broke out and the club that was hosting was very upset about that. And, um, yeah, it was kind of a, it was a breach of etiquette, you know, it was supposed to be a, a neutral day. Um, but yeah, that was a little, a little crazy <laughs> to arrive and see the, the ambulances and, you know, all that starting to, to happen. So did you get yeah. scared? Were you scared at, at that time, at that certain point? No, it was, it was over. And, you know, I went right to the, some of the hosts, some of the club members who were hosting the event and, you know, got like asked them what happened and what was going on. Um, but yeah, it was just, I know they were just disappointed, you know, cause obviously yeah. that's something that they, that's not a look that they want to be. <laughs> of course. Of giving course. To the neighborhood. Yeah. So so now, yeah. what are, what are some of the uh, beefs that these guys have though? Now, I mean, with because I don't know that you know that kind of culture. I'm an independent rider, and and I'm glad they put that in the book. By the way, I love that. But like I'm like I like to ride by myself. But what are some of the beefs that certain clubs have against each other? Like what would cause a beef between two clubs? That that, that it can escalate to the point of where it got to where you saw. Well, I I know that some clubs have 
like historic beefs, right? Like they just historically, um, these two clubs have kind of been rivals um, and they are just never really going to want to hang out or be peaceful. Um, Clubs that have been around for decades uh, who, I guess the, the weird thing about New York that I guess you don't get in a lot of other places, which was explained to me by some of the people I interviewed was that in, in New York, you don't really have like a, what they call a dominant or a boss. Um, Like you have, I guess I'm assuming in places like LA Mm -hmm. or Oakland, where you have a dominant who kind of sets the tone on how things are run and, you know, whether you're aligned with them or not, you go to them and you say, look, we want to start a club. Is this cool? Or like, look, this is happening. Can you help us resolve it? Um, that doesn't really exist in New York. In New York, it's kind of in a typical, you know, I love New York. In a typical New York fashion, it's chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, clubs are, are popping up without, you know, maybe without permission, Um, you know, maybe this outlaw club is giving permission for this new club to start. And this outlaw club that's on the other side of the tracks is, is, um, you know, granting permission for this little club to pop up. And then those two support clubs beef. And then the bigger two clubs are beefing because their support club beefed. It's like, it could be anything, but it seems like, you know, and, and I'm not current now that I've been, Um, I stopped photographing this project in 2019. I'm still in touch with people, but I haven't been in the scene. Um, I'm not current on what's going on now. And I guess stuff has not gotten any less chaotic (laughs) in the last couple of years. But I think there's just motorcycle clubs seem to really flourish, you know, through high, through um, hierarchy and, and like regulation and, and adherence to protocol and tradition, you know, that's kind of, that's how they seem to function best. And when they don't have kind of these, uh, these like kind of community rules in place that are set by the dominant, it's, it seems like it can get really messy. Well, is so, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I don't know if that really explains things or not. But well, I mean, I, isn't it up to the presidents though to to squash that or whatever? I mean, I, like I said, I'm an outside, I'm an outside looking in, and you were inside, so I know you don't want to drop any names. But yeah, wouldn't isn't it up to the presidents to stop all that, or for them to get together and be like, hey, listen, you know, you need to settle your member down, and I'm going to talk to this guy, and we need to, you know, we need to chill. Yeah, sometimes it does just come down to individual members beefing. And in that case, yeah, someone, a president, a vice president, a sergeant at arms can step in and be like, look, you need to resolve this. Or, you know, sometimes someone will have to like, will have to go to the club and apologize. Really? uh, Explain themselves. Yeah. There are a few, uh, one or two of my good friends in the scene They're they're, they've been in the scene a long time and they've been able to be kind of like mediators and, and peacekeepers in some of these situations. Um, they're like, Hey, look, you were in the wrong. You need to take care of that and, and can kind of squash something before it gets bigger. Um, but yeah, I, yes. Like presidents can, um, 
can do that to a degree, but also, you know, it gets, it gets more complicated when you have clubs that have a lot of chapters, right? So yeah. if, if these two clubs that are fine with each other in New York, if they both have chapters in Atlanta that are beefing, then it's, it might be tense between these two chapters in New York, just because, you know, those are their brothers down in Atlanta. So it's, <laughs> It's always complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't want to drop any names. I know you're trying to you're trying to weave it through. You're answering it. I mean, you'd be perfect. You'd be perfect on the stand. Let's put it that way. They put you on the stand. Like I'd be like, all right, I'm not going to jail. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> well, but like, I, you know, I don't know a lot of the details. I will say that, you know, these clubs are. I I did hear. I observed things on my own, and but a lot of times I heard about things after they happened. You know, I would see like, huh, there's a lot of tension going on here. And then someone would explain, like, if I was lucky, someone would explain to me, you know, a month or two months later, like, oh, yeah, that was happening. I was like, okay, I thought so. (laughs) Okay, like like what, for example, like, tell me, for example, without, without, without specifics, I don't want to get you in trouble. Like, say, like, you know, you went to a place and, you know, you always just feel tension. Kind of like when your parents would get into it, like, I think mom and daddy are fighting, but then they're trying to, you know, do it around us. So, like, what what would happen? Like, what situation were you in where you're like, "Ah, I feel there's some tension. Then you find out later, like, I knew that. Like, what happened specifically? Well, that was actually tension within a single club. Um, so yeah, that was even, that's even more taboo, right? <laughs> because, because these clubs, you know, they don't want to be airing their dirty laundry to other clubs. They've of always got to present a, a united front. But yeah. Um, yeah, even like I will, like, so I was, I mean, I was definitely privy to more information than the average person because I was there for five years. But even so, like, I, there was a lot that I didn't know. And, you know, from interviewing these club members, you know, I I was thinking at first, the first couple of years, like, oh, I just need to like, like, they'll, they'll trust me and um, I'll see more of it. But even really within these clubs, And I think a few people talk about it in the interviews, like the senior members will choose what to tell the junior members, you know, they're not going to tell them everything. It's, uh, someone called it like a secret sea of like little of like kind of swarming around you. And he's talking about when he first joins this club and, you know, even, even when he was a new member of the club, it took, it took a good amount of time for those senior members to, to trust him and tell him everything. So now, now trust him in what way though? I mean, if you're in the same club, what and trust in what way that he's going to go run in his mouth or, or like, yeah, like in what way? Yeah. I think he could run his mouth to see how he could handle. Yeah. How he could handle certain situations if he was going to, um, you know, keep, keep this information within the club if he was um you know if he was a newer member he'd maybe just been around for a year like if he was if he was going to be there for the long run or if he was going to leave the club and go to another club you don't want him taking all all that club's dirty laundry to another club right Right, so it really like it's it it's a lifelong commitment and it's it seems like you really you have to prove yourself over you know, decades. Um, so it's really, 
it's, I think it's particularly unusual in that way. Like trust, like five years sounds like a lot of time for me to be there, but in the motorcycle world, like that's kind of like just the beginning. Like I was just, okay. They're like, they're just starting to accept that I wasn't going to go somewhere and like, you know, completely forget about them. Right? Oh, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it does sound long for a project, but when it's a lifestyle, yeah, four years, I mean, five years is nothing when it's a lifestyle yeah. and like, did anybody get sucked up in it? They didn't think they were going to be a lifer. And all of a sudden they're like, damn, I'm, yeah, this, this is the lifestyle I choose now. I mean, this is it. Yeah, like one uh, one member of um, like the Black Falcons who was really cool, who I photographed a bunch. Um, he's kind of stepped away from the club just because he has decided that, you know, he wants to focus on like, I don't know, he wants to he wants to get married and have kids. And he's like, yeah, I just haven't found the woman for me like in this world. It's definitely a little bit harder. Um, and I've heard that from other people as well, not just him, mm-hmm. um, because there is the partying and there is um, the travel. And uh, actually, church lady talks about that, too. She's like, you need to a uh, church lady who's a, yes. a biker who ministers to the motorcycle yes. community. Yes. Um, she ministers to many bikers and she says to them, you know, you have to have your house in order if you're going to make it work in the MC world. Like you've got to be strong in your marriage or, you know, whatever that important, those important relationships are outside of the club um, to keep everything harmonious, to keep your club life strong, to keep your home life strong. Um, And people have different ways that they, that I kind of observed them doing that. But um, yeah, that was, that's a facet. (laughs) Okay. Now, what difference do you know between like, okay, say the, say the president's family, okay, and opposed to a regular member's family or somebody who's, who isn't even in the motorcycle set? Do you think they have a stronger core value in the motorcycle club or like in your everyday run-of-the-mill life? Well, yeah, you definitely, like, if you're the president of a motorcycle club, one of these clubs, you have to, that's an everyday thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and they're all like, I did not meet any biker who did not have like a full-time career outside of, outside of the MC. Um, but yeah, it it has to be a full-time thing. And I think that your, your wife has to be, she has to know how it goes. She has to like, she has to be involved as well. Um, or choose or so I saw, I'm trying to organize my thoughts here. <laughs> yeah, People do it. People do it differently. Right. Um, but it, they definitely have to have a set plan and a set, um, a set way of going about it. So yeah, I if you're the president, even if you're the vice president, if you're if you're one of those top positions in the club, um, usually what I just what I observed is that that person um, had a long history in the MC world, and usually their wife um, grew up in that world as well, so she really had a deep understanding of it and she knew the responsibilities that her husband would have and 
you know, how often he would be with the club brothers and not at home. Right. Or she would be there helping out with all the events and hanging out with all the other wives and girlfriends and, and club members. So yeah, you have to definitely take, take that person um, with the motorcycle community. <laughs> now, did you go to a lot of parties? Yeah. How, how, how are they? Were they as wild as you think they are or uh, wilder than anything you think they are uh, true or false? I, they met my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you keep it close to the best. Like, were they, were they wild? Like, holy shit. Were they, okay, this isn't so bad. Like, how were they? No, you know, I mean, well, I, I'm not, I don't think that I'm easily shocked. So there's that. <laughs> but no, I think they were like, they were wild, you know, there's. Like how wild? Like what, what happened? And you go, okay, yeah, okay. I guess that's how they roll. Like, like what, what, what would happen at these parties? If I was a fly on the wall, what would happen? Like that, that, that you wouldn't see at a normal party. I think the stuff that didn't shock me that might shock some people is yeah. like the bikini bike washes and the, and the strippers and stuff. Uh, Cause the bikini bike washes are usually like hired strippers and they're not doing a lot of bike washing. <laughs> <laughs> like people don't come to get their bikes washed. <laughs> they're like, these women don't know how to wash Chrome the right way. You know, <laughs> like that's not what they're there for. Um, but those, you know, that was like, and that was like, not these these kind of events, you know, they're, everyone's dancing, the strippers are dancing on the bikers and, you know, people are having a good time and, and, and there were even like families there and stuff. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, (laughs) you know, there are little, little boys off to the side, like (laughs) they're big eyes. Um, but yeah, like, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't shocking to me it might, you know, it's maybe not your usual party. Yeah. Um, the stuff that I found like a little more, um, or I was kind of like looking over my shoulder were like the really big club parties, um, with, you know, hundreds of people and, you know, they're like checking everyone for weapons. And there's obviously some clubs there that are probably beefing. So you just kind of have to keep your eye out a little bit more, um, those are, those for me were like the crazier parties, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and people had talked to me about how things had changed, you know, I guess in the past couple decades, there wasn't as much of this tension. It, it really, it used to be a little bit more, um, casual people just laughing and dancing and having a good time. There wasn't so much beefing between the clubs as there is now. Um, so that's unfortunate. And that's something that a lot of the bikers are really kind of lamenting, um, now. Cause it's, yeah, they say that the parties aren't the same as they were. <laughs> oh, well, you know, maybe that's with age, but like what changed though? Like, yeah. I feel like a lot of stuff has changed that way. Like what changed in that community where like, oh man, it used to be so much fun, but now there's that kind of, like you said, look over your shoulder. Like what do you think was the, the principal element of the change? Well, there is more divisiveness and it, it's come from the club. Actually the, the scene actually growing. Um, I guess, Apparently, you know, let's say 20, 30 years ago, um, there were only maybe 
10 to 20 like recognizable clubs in the city mm-hmm. and now there are hundreds which you know on the one hand is awesome that this this community is growing like it is and that there are a lot more like young people and women riders like getting into motorcycle riding and forming their own clubs um but i guess the issues arise when i kind of mentioned earlier like if these clubs pop up and they didn't seek the appropriate permission um or there's not this kind of like there's not this dominant who is uh kind of overseeing things and making sure like, okay, well, maybe we don't need this new club. Maybe you should think about joining one of these clubs and, and strengthening them and, and having that. uh, So when there are, when there is this huge community, I guess, when there were only 10 or 20 clubs before they could kind of get to know each other, support each other. um, But now there's too many relationship. And now it's like, you know, there are a lot more people, I guess, who are a little bit more transitory who maybe come into the life uh, for the parties for a couple years and then leave. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think that there, of course, there's always that nostalgia, like, uh, yeah, it used to be better back in the day. Of course. But, um, you know, I can see where that nostalgia comes from. Like when you're, when there's social media showing people like, Hey, you can like just join a club and party. And, you know, instead of, having them really like commit to the lifestyle, the brotherhood and sisterhood, the relationship um, of being in the club. Um, I get that that's what, that's what they're kind of mourning. And, and I can see that. And it's like everything else in life. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there was how there's albums and albums were all, almost every song was great. And there's that one song that you never got on the radio, but that was your favorite song. And now I feel like, you know, it's all about the downloads and, you know, somebody comes up with a hit and that's it. You don't get the whole, you know, the whole package like you used to. So I lament that with music. So I guess it would happen with the bike culture. But one thing I, I, I didn't get and I want to know is like, you know, with the white one percenters are just white bike clubs. You know, they're all about it has to be an American bike. And so and what I saw just from the pictures for with the bike, black bike clubs, it, it seems like there's a lot of sport bikes now. And so are they really adamant about it has to be American, it has to be an American bike or they're like, whatever, whatever. Most clubs don't have that rule. Um, like the, the one percenter clubs, you're going to have usually some kind of rule for, you know, engine size, uh, sometimes American made, sometimes not. Um, but, you know, I also appreciate there are those black clubs who are like, we're going to do things our own way and they set their own rules. Um, And if you think about it as well, if you think about like those white clubs out in California on their Harleys, um, again, there's that difference between the California biker with the sunny weather and the open highways and the really long distance rides versus like a New York biker, more of a city biker um, where you're dodging taxis, your trips are going to be shorter mileage. you're dodging potholes and pedestrians and, you know, in that way, sports bikes make a lot of sense in the city. So, um, yeah, you don't see the same like stringent rules in general. 
and, and I know this is a non sequitur. I'm going back to the beginning. I just remember you saying that. And for some reason, and this story almost broke my heart, was the guy who was a military guy, and he rode from San Antonio to New York. And it was in 1983, and he couldn't get a hotel till he got to Virginia. Because he was a black, because he was black, even though he had his military uniform on, and no place would let him get a hotel. And this is 1983, and he couldn't get a hotel until he got to Virginia. And I thought that was so sad. I, mean, I really, I thought, wow, really. And that was to me, that's another example of the, the the divide or the difference between the white bikers and the black bikers. But the fact that he had a military uniform on, and they would say, "Get your gas and go." Yeah, that's wild. That that story made my jaw drop as well. Because I like, you know, I I looked into the history of black bikers, right? And I read about like Bessie Stringfield, who couldn't get a hotel in Jim Crow era in the 30s when she was riding around and like her her bravery and her determination. And, you know, I'm like, that's that was horrible. But like, oh, that was the 30s. Right. Right. But yeah, to hear to hear about you know, this friend of mine that it happened to him in the eighties. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. I, I thought that was, uh, that was to me, that was crazy. And it just made me just go, wow. I, like I said, that the forward of the book just sets the tone and it's just, you know, you get to know these guys. Uh, like I felt like I knew these guys. And when I said that pre-story, it just hit me. And I love that one. And I got to see, and just for a couple, is that like, if you see this, like the, uh, talk about this can you see this i love the, the this picture here and it looks like nothing but it shows him you can tell he went down uh kind of recently a look can you see a picture i'm talking about do you remember yeah. that picture do you remember that picture yeah and what, yeah that was uh that was about a month after his accident actually so it had healed quite a bit <laughs> yeah did he say what happened exactly what happened i think he had slid out on something like in an intersection up in the Bronx. Um, yeah, it's, that's another city thing. That's like, that's, I got to give these New York bikers credit. Um, you know, I know one biker who was, who broke their back because, um, like a fast food joint had tossed their oil into the street. Yes. I read that story. Yes. You know, so it's just, (laughs) you never know what's going to happen riding around New York. Um, yeah, I think should that particular picture you just showed was, um, yeah, I think he, he slid out somehow, but on the awful New York roads, <laughs> yeah, if they're just worse, a normal, than, just a normal, you know, everyday kind of accident. If they're worse than Indianapolis, I feel sorry for those guys. I really, if they're worse than Indianapolis, I really feel sorry for those guys, but I love, for some reason, I know this is your guy and I feel like he was my guy that I love that pit. It looks so simple. But that picture is just, it, it's, it just speaks to me more than anything. And I just felt, it just really hit me hard. Like I said, you, you feel, your book made you feel like you know these people. Like, you know what I mean? And so when I found out he passed, man, that just hit me hard. And I see this picture and it just brings a sense of like, a, just, I don't know, melancholy to me. Like, what did, yeah, brown sugar, was- what did brown sugar mean to you? Yeah, brown sugar was like such an amazing, kind person. He really was incredible at connecting people in the motorcycle community. He would always be making connections. And he, so Brown Sugar, you know, started way back in the day. He started in the 60s. Um, and 
that was a very different world back then. I mean, it actually, when motorcycle riding was still from what he told me when it was still in those early days, um, he talks about, I think it was chopper magazine. Yes. Early magazines came out. It was like half black guys, half white guys. I mean, it really showed the reality of who was riding motorcycles um, because motorcycling in the 60s was still so countercultural. It was still so rebellious that, um, you know, of course, like what, like it's black guys, it's white guys, like they're all rebels. Right. Um, and he he just mentions with that magazine, once it went to newsstands years later, they took out all of the black riders. Um, yes. So it was kind of interesting that he saw this shift in his lifetime of, you know, this like motorcycling being, and and he rode cross country in the sixties too. And he talks about how everyone was great. Like he was scared. Yeah. He was, he was scared, you know, after seeing the movie easy rider that he was going to get shot off his bike. Yes. Um, but actually that, all the people he met along the way were super kind and supportive. They, you know, helped him fix his bike when it broke down. Um, and he was shocked by like this solidarity that he saw between bike riders across the nation. Cause it was this, these early days. Um, and then he kind of witnessed this like whitewashing of the motorcycle world, right. Of like black riders disappearing out of the magazines and, you know, these clubs forming that didn't allow black membership and, you know, all these things. Um, although he was that rat pack that he was in, in the sixties or early seventies in New York. Um, I believe that was, that was like a mixed race club. Yes. Um, but yeah, then, so he's kind of always had this unique perspective because he's seen these things shift. And now I feel like he like later in his life, he also became this bridge um, because he said he was like such an OG, such a legend, like everyone, black and white riders, like went to him and were like, wow, like, tell us your history. Tell us what it was like back in the day. Yeah. Um, so he really, I feel like was amazing at connecting people and um, bringing them together. So, and he was a great photographer. I was actually working with him on, digitizing his archive um before he passed and i've i have to talk to the family and see if they'd still be open to that because he was a really great photographer he photographed he was the original new york mc photographer he started doing this like in the 70s and 80s um so i want to get his work out there um i'm talking it up to harley davidson and Whoever will show it, you know, because his work needs to be out in the world. He's got a great archive. What you do and what you're doing, man, I mean, they talk about allies nowadays. And that's what you do. You do nothing but just celebrate the culture in a great way. And before I get out of here, wait, how did you come about this picture being the cover? Because I think it's there, there's no better just badass picture than this. I mean, when I saw it, I go, Yes. I mean, in a way, I kind of wanted a motorcycle on the cover, but in a way, you know, it's about motorcycle when you see this guy. How did you how did you know to pick this one as the cover? Yeah. Cover image is really hard to choose. That's a lot of pressure because you want to you want to like draw someone in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt like with this with this cover, I was kind of like doing what a lot of the pictures do. There's 
you see it and you're like, this is a biker. Like you get that immediately with the jewelry and like the general badass demeanor, the cigar, the look, you're like, this is a biker. And that's your immediate reaction. But then you're like, wait a second. (laughs) If you, if you come with preconceptions, like most of us do, you're like, but he's black he's a black biker wearing all this crazy jewelry and, and, you know, kind of he's, he's, there's like the fitting into that stereotype and the breaking of that stereotype at the same time. And I really liked that, that kind of, um, that kind of push and pull. And yeah, I wanted something that would grab your attention. That would make you want to look deeper. Yes. Um, because he is kind of an enigma with his sunglasses and I love it. You know, he's a little bit anonymous. So I thought he could kind of represent, you know, the, the bike scene in a broader sense. And then there's the red and the blue, which for me, you know, I'm bringing in the just American history. That's Uh, that was so ingenious. I don't know if everybody caught that, but that was all that what you do is genius. I caught that. And I think it's beautiful. It just shows that we are part of America and we're into that. And I I love how you did that. I really do. And like I said, this picture is so iconic. It's just that is just badass. You see the rings. You see, I mean, it's everything. And you bridge, you show every if you get the book, please get the book. It shows every story possible. The young guys, like I said, with Priest, for some reason that connected with me. You got Brown Sugar, who, like you said, was the bridge. And of all that, you are the glue. You really are. You are the straw that stirs that drink. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart, Kate. I am up against it, God damn it. But man... Please, but I, I wish you best with, with the kid. It's going to be wonderful. I hope it's healthy. But put that kid in a sling and you go on another five-year uh, voyage. But I want you to go West Coast, Midwest, and Southeast. That's all yeah, I Yeah, Easy Riders is my first baby after all. <laughs> I love it. Thank God. you, BT. No, it was great to talk again. God damn it. I, I love to, I mean, AK, I love talking to you. I could talk about this culture all the time. I hope somewhere, somewhere we're close to each other so we can talk in person. If you ever come to Indianapolis, you're definitely coming inside the studio. Please do. But is there anything else you want to get out to these people before I got to go? No, just, you know, you can order the book on my website, katedingley.com. It's also coming into indie bookstores around the country. Um, so if you have a local bookstore that you love, you know, you can ask them to order it. Um, but yeah, it'll be in, in an indie bookstore near you and on my website. It's Hope you be- enjoy it. <laughs> no, I didn't enjoy it. I loved it. And I really do. And anybody from the culture, if you're watching it and you're in one of these MCs, please don't come after me. I respect the hell out of you. So thank you so much. <laughs> Kate, what you're doing, like I said, it's monumental. You are a beacon and a star and an ally, and I love you for it. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Hit me up Hit me up with the link for that shirt. I'm, I'm getting that shirt. I'm getting that shirt today. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate you. And thank you so much for watching Tales from a Gemini. I'm BT, and you know how we say it by this time. You know the word. Peace.